0: Hello, welcome to Two Paychecks Podcast. And we're excited this time because we'll be speaking to Dan Burke No Bacon of Chumbawamba. And he's going to tell us all about being an anarcho punk in an anarcho punk collective in the 80s and resisting Margaret Thatcher, supporting the miners' strike and the pranks they would use to fuck with the man and things like that so let's get started you've been doing uh political art since like the 70s like the late 70s right
1: yeah yeah the first band we had uh we uh i guess right out of high school when i was 18 to 19 Seventy-eight, seventy-nine, kind of time, uh, and that lasted for I don't know. We were, we were just weird, punky kind of thing, and we did, we did, we were. Our, I guess our politics were forming at that time, uh, and that band, you know, it kind of came and went. And then we realised four of us who were in that band went on to start Womba in nineteen eighty-two. Early uh, in January, 1982, we played our first show. And uh, very soon after that, you know, uh, Margaret Thatcher invaded the Falkland Islands and suddenly we became kind of politicized whilst we were a band, you know. And and from that point on, really, it was when Crass, uh, the sort of anarcho-punk scene was happening in England and and we became part of that and, and became very politicized playing a lot of benefit shows and, and we didn't actually make the first record till nineteen eighty five but we made cassettes before that. Uh so we we were always involved from the start of Jumbo uh certainly political you know fundraising for groups, helping groups make money or they wouldn't otherwise have money to organise. Uh, and I think we realized early on that we, we also, you know, helped organize local demonstrations and everything, but we realized pretty soon on we were better at doing the music and theatre than actually being political organisers. So it, so it <laughs> became a point where we worked with other people rather than were like key organisers. Even though as individuals, we were probably you know involved in many different groups. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um... Uh, you know, our first record label was called Agit Prop, meaning agitational propaganda. <laughs> which was is uh, kind of like Bertolt Brecht, uh, his style of theatre. Uh, you know, people said, oh, you like Bertolt Brecht, and we didn't know who Bertolt Brecht was, so we looked it up. And it's carried on, you know. I mean, I won't jump 30 years, but the situation now is probably as dire as it's ever been in my experience. I mean, we were born during the Thatcher-Reagan years when it was pretty dire and... Uh, of course, yeah. the George Bush years. I won't say the Clinton years were much better, or Obama, uh, but certainly now we're in a new, new kind of ballpark where everything's under attack.
0: Well, I guess that's. I guess well, just that was a, qu- a question. I was kind of. I guess since you're already there, um, yeah. Like, so you were, yeah, you were alive during Thatcher in organizing around, you know, against that kind of like. Uh, system and now you are living in the states during the Trump, yeah, uh, the yeah. Trump era. So I was wondering, do you, s- how do you see them as being sort of like, s- like, w- how can you do, sort of like, do you see them as similar, or obviously you just said they, you think Thatcher was, or you think Trump's worse, but
1: I, uh, I, I, I think they are similar. You know, I think if we want to call it neoliberalism, you know, the economic order changed in the 1970s. And as the, the sort of corporate bosses realized and the conservative think tanks, they felt under attack from the 60s or whatever and the 70s to a certain extent. And they evolved new ways to basically control the economy of the planet, which the general umbrella term, neoliberalism and that. So, Thatcher and Reagan were great initiators of that, you know, getting rid of regulations on corporations Uh, Austerity, you know, it was a lot of poor people in the 1980s in Northern England, where we lived, uh, and their lives were made worse, Uh, a a huge strike by the coal miners, which we did benefits for in 1984 and 85, Thatcher just wanted to smash the trade unions, Reagan, similar approach, and that has carried on through successive presidencies here, whether Republican or Democrat, the Democrats might be a little bit cleverer about hiding it or, or throw a few more peanuts to, to regular people. But, you know, the, the, the economic stranglehold really started, you know, with Thatcher and Reagan and has carried on. And Trump really and the GOP now, they, they're like the extreme uh, result of all that
0: right right well let's see i was thinking i mean i can't think of any direct quotes but like i remember thatcher well whatever i don't remember thatcher um <laughs> but uh i mean i was a child like like really mm-hmm. young during the reagan era but um yeah uh, there was um she said similar things as as donald trump that like seemed like overly you know, sort of like fascistic, and like
1: yeah, yeah. There was a there was certainly a feeling of that then. Uh, you know, you know, and uh, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan wanted to put nuclear missiles on British soil to aim them at Russia, uh, and and it was weird, you know, because Russia had the nuclear missiles too. But Western Europe, this is before the Berlin Wall came in, would have been destroyed, and the U.S. and Moscow. You know, they had the idea of a winnable nuclear war. I mean, it never happened, but, you know, people were huge protest movements against it. Uh, uh, so that was all going on, the Cold War. And then, you know, uh, the Berlin Wall collapses. The CIA, whose job it is to undermine communism, didn't see it coming because it came from ordinary people. Uh, and And so George Bush senior's president and there's a moment in time where, okay, well we can do something differently here. You know, and uh there were certain Democrat politicians and they called it the peace dividend. Right, we've won the Cold War. Uh even though it was like the people of Eastern Europe who rose up but the the US kinda claimed credit for it capitally right, from wings today. Yeah. Uh, and now we could spend money on education and health, but they chose not to. They chose to spend it on the military, and it has got worse. Ever. So they felt right, you know, the Pentagon's right. Now we can rule the world kind of thing. We can have military dominance over the planet. And you see, you know, Donald Trump saying, oh, the military's underfunded. We need to give, you know, X more trillions of dollars to carry on that. And the Democrats did it. They all did it ever-increasing military budgets, especially after 9-11. So we're in a a very uh, tense situation, I think, because obviously, you know, even if everyone grows up, they have so much military firepower. uh, There's no way ordinary people can fight that. You know, the whole Second Amendment thing, a well-armed militia, absolute bonkers. Uh, so, but we do, you know, the planet, the uh, the health of the planet, our future ability to live on the planet depends on us overthrowing the economic system, which, you know, is at the moment going full throttle in the opposite direction of what it should be for the health of the planet under Donald Trump and the GOP. Uh, So, uh, I don't know, and you look at history and revolutions, and revolutions kind of happen when (laughs) the military or the cops join forces with the people, they defect from power. So, uh, whether that is gonna happen, I think there's hopeful signs, Uh, you know, people are so riled up, there's way more uh, people getting involved than I remember say, during the 80s. We always felt marginalized. But now, like, I mean, where I live, just ordinary people who've never been on the demonstration or never, you know, uh, rung up their representative or people, people want to do things. You know, they're so outraged because basically everything is under attack for most people, the 99% or whatever. Uh, so it's very interesting, shall
0: I say yeah i mean yeah like this is all very true um so i guess that like so like um you said in the 80s you were marginalized can you tell us a little bit about like what it was like to be a part of not necessarily just the the radical punk movement but the you know anarchist movement in general during that time like how did it feel
1: well well thatcher was the classic thing you know so uh so the Falklands, well, we're on a demonstration <laughs> in Leeds, the city where we lived, and I don't know, there's like 100 people, and there's more people on the sidewalks who are, you know, pro uh, Thatcher, pro the war against Argentina. And the police are basically protecting us <laughs> from the public. So we were very marginalized there. What Thatcher did, she basically picked on various groups and took them on one by one so the coal miners uh so it was like a divide and rule thing she would divide the working class you know and the 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 media the in britain a lot of it owned by Rupert Murdoch fox uh fox news uh boss owner uh, very pro government very uh, anti trade union anti worker uh, and they can rile up certain parts of the working class population to to, to vote for that, you know, uh, by simplifying the issues and making them black and white, uh, good versus evil. Oh, the miners are violent, they're evil, we can't support them, kind of thing. Uh, so what's interesting now, uh, to compare it, it seems like the GOP and Trump as the figurehead, I don't think he's by any means the architect. Uh, they're just attacking everything. Uh, and Thatcher did it in the end. She brought in a poll tax, which was like local taxes. Suddenly, rather than being on a sliding scale, she brought this thing in uh, where everybody, didn't matter if you were a millionaire, a billionaire, you paid the same as somebody who earned 40 quid a week for your local taxes, and it was like an attack on everyone. And that was part of a downfall because she took on too many people, and it seems like Trump and the GOP—they are just taking on everyone. It doesn't matter if it's the environment, you know, the workers. He said he's being elected to stand up for. They just—they just basically ransacking everything, you know, the and and funneling funneling the money to the people who are already super rich. So it's like a a real pirate operation. And it, it seems there there the you know, there there will be things it, who will know which what the straw will be which will break the camel's back, but it can't sustain itself. Uh and maybe they'll last four years and then get bought out or maybe something more dramatic will happen. Because it is unsustainable, you know, I mean, or the planet will be right, yeah, I'm fucked, the planet's fucked and suddenly, you know, uh, there's a tipping point with climate and temperatures shoot up and all chaos lets loose. I think they know that's a possibility and I think they think that all that weaponry will protect them from it, whatever happens. Uh, I mean it's very hard to uh you know, the Pentagon know that by uh, you know, dropping smart bombs and drone attacks in Afghanistan, in the Middle East, they know that people will get riled up and some of those people will become terrorists. They they've done studies, they know that. But it perpetuates their power, you know, the war machine, the the ability of Congress to to get Trillions of dollars to the military, so it's not like they don't know. Uh, it's whether their plans, you know, are actually based in reality or a cloud cuckoo line Because nobody knows what would happen. You know, if the temperatures suddenly do spike, which is possible. Uh, they call it tipping points, where uh, you know all the forces coalesce and suddenly we're just in a whole different situation. Uh, so, and then the other alternative is maybe, hopefully, that all the progressive forces in the world somehow uh, effect uh, society, you know, eco- basically structural change. You know, we have a lot of cultural revolution, you know, punk rock, art, theater, people's attitudes, but the structure has remained the same, and it's become more entrenched as this ultra-capitalist predator system. And until we find some way to change that, we're just on a, a, a train that's escalating in speed to, to disaster, it seems. Uh, and science you know, uh, backs that up, really. You know, the environment, the depreciation of the environment. Uh, So I think the stakes, I mean, the stakes were high in the 80s because we thought we might be going to nuclear war. We think that again, and that's possible. I mean, they talk about smaller nuclear weapons, uh, but it seems because of uh, global warming, climate change, and the unpredictability of it, uh, then and we're all feeling it, I mean, I live out in northeastern Washington and it's fire country. Uh, We've had two serious fires in the last four years, way bigger than anything before. Uh, Last year we had smoke. We were under a blanket of smoke for like three weeks in summer. We didn't really have fires close by. but All of Washington was. Canada. I mean, all the West was on fire. Yeah. Uh,
2: Last year was horrible.
1: Uh, so we're feeling it. And, and you know, they say, oh, well, you know, forest fire is natural, but most of the fires are human caused and the fire season is 70 days longer than it was 40 years ago. So the chances, and that's because of global warming, the length of the fire season. Uh, it You know, it's a natural thing, but it's, it's made extreme by what's happening. So I see myself as an artist rather than a political organizer. I do get involved in political uh, groups you know locally what's happening here a little bit uh, and supporting that uh, but I my thing is you know art is it uh, is it's an essential tool in our work box if you like because you know one other aspect of how things are run is that you know particularly uh, public education, university education, it's been under attack for decades. Critical thinking, you know, under attack because, uh, you know, the billionaire owners of the media know it's easier to manipulate people if they don't stop and think about the issues, if they just see the headline and don't read beyond it. Uh, So I think art is an antidote to that. you know, whether it's music, theater, whatever it is, or graphic art, visual art. Uh, so it is it, an essential thing. And and I, you know, I do, uh, I do songs that are not inherently political. And I do some songs that are, and I think that's part of an artist's duty. A lot of artists, uh, shy away from being overtly political, uh, But I, I, you know, Chumbawamba, we come from a tradition uh, where I guess English folk music in the first place, but then punk rock, where, yeah, this is a a chance to offer like an alternative view of what is actually going on around us. Uh, So that's how I see my role, really, of course, in this world where... uh, (laughs) It's changed so much since we first started. It's whether, is anybody listening to me? I don't know. I ask that a lot. Uh, I see if I play a show, I know, you know, and I talk to people. But it's it's very difficult these days to actually make an impression, you know, uh, on YouTube or get a song out there and get it heard. It's what I do. I don't, I don't know if I can, I can't not do it, so I might as well do it. Uh, along with everything else
0: right yeah well things are very splintered now I guess to where if you make political art I guess it's not necessarily easy to find the audience and certainly not. no and you know I mean that's only one
1: side the other side is you just work locally where you are which is what I do mostly I don't really travel I go to Seattle and Portland a couple of times a year and play and I, I did go to the East Coast last year this time like well in April last year uh, when I brought the CD out uh, and I connected with people from you know uh, way back you know in DC and New York and it uh, was still active and some of them are doing music and some of them are political organizers uh, uh, and it's 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 kind of cool to know that that culture which we all went through still exists and has mutated maybe and you know to suit the times uh but people who went through punk rock whether in northern england or here in the us it changed who they are it changed who i was and that's why i'm probably so upset about what's going on in the world today because i find something that uh spoke to me yeah you don't have to settle for the status quo especially when the status quo is trying its very best to keep you under its
0: boot heel, right? Um, yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, I wouldn't be where I was if I didn't, you know, have political art, some kind of like breadcrumbs to you know, radical thought, um, mm-hmm. and things like that, um, for sure. But it's can you? Tell us a little bit about now. The miner strike was a was a big loss, right? So they broke that strike. I don't know, like, so it was sort they of. It did, considered.
1: yeah. It lasted over a year, but in the end, basically Margaret Thatcher, and this was her aim all along, you know, was were twofold, you know, to to give a lot of government funding to nuclear power, you know, corporations who were making nuclear power, and to Uh, basically bankrupt the coal industry in Britain by just getting cheap imports from Poland. And it was to destroy the, you know, it it all was all part of a plan to destroy the power of the unions uh, and make it easier for corporations just to make huge profits. uh, At the expense of ordinary people, uh, which is exactly what Trump's doing now. Uh, You know, rolling back government regulation making it harder for people to organize politically as, as trade unions. Do and it's it's just their modus operandi, sort of. So uh yeah, so yeah, she you know, she basically more or less made the mining industry extinct. Now and at the time we you know, I thought this because 'cause I've always been environmentally minded. Uh, I had to make a choice: do I support the miners because they're producing this awful, dirty, polluting substance, and you know a lot of them die young because of the, the uh just they inhale, uh, or you know, do I just sit on the sidelines? And and we kind of went through that, and we just felt, well, look, the, these are people like you know. The people, the places we weaker up, you know, they're just ordinary working class people. So we supported it. Uh, I mean, in a way, it's its good. I mean, and Trump's trying to bring back the coal industry here when he was dying, uh, which is just absolute insanity. Uh, so, uh, and it, it is, you know, I think we learned early on that you have to be, uh, even though we we described ourselves as anarchists, I still would. I don't expect everybody to become an anarchist. I don't even try and change people's minds to be an anarchist. But I think an anarchist voice, looking at the situation, is is as important as other people's voices. But I understand we have to work with other groups. We might not agree with totally, but if we can find some common ground, that is the only way we are going to change things. So... Uh, Even though, you know, in effect, Thatcher won, you could say, because she got away, a lot of the people who went through that, working-class people who might have voted for her before would never vote for her again or her party. And interestingly, in England, we have a situation where, uh, you know, there's a Conservative, which is like the Republican Party here. They're in power, but uh, the uh, Labour Party, which were like the Democrats under Tony Blair, very pro corporate. Uh, they have a leader now, Jeremy Corbyn, who is very like Bernie Sanders in, in yeah. you know, in his his election manifesto was for the many, not the few. And and against all the odds and against what all the mainstream press said, uh, and even, you know, the people who supported Blair in his own party backstabbing him, he did amazingly well at the last election. Far beyond whatever uh, was predicted, so you know. So it leaves the Conservatives in a very delicate position, and the situation in England is, you know, if if they lose a major vote, then the government basically resigns, and you have an election. Uh, So that could happen any time. I sense, I don't know, that England, for once, could Britain could go to the left. You know, and we might see some change, uh, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see because, you know, of course, the the media is owned by the right-leaning friends of the billionaires and corporations and governments. So you're always know, up against it. But it does show that uh, it did show uh, that ordinary people organising can have an impact, right. and it it kind of nearly happened here with Bernie Sanders if the Democrats hadn't been so. Uh, entrenched in their sort of conservatism.
0: Right. Uh, and they're like, yeah. And they, they're they already working on cutting him from the next election. Like, I know.
1: Yeah. So there's a huge struggle going on between like people who really want to see change and who are progressive and the old guard of the Democrats who they just can't take the blink of. They can't let go of the idea. And it's partly because they're. You know, they're funded by the same corporations, the Democrats, as much as anybody else.
0: Right. They, they
1: just can't bite the hand that feeds.
0: Yeah, that's the corporate uh, Democrat. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I was just looking at, you know, the minor strikes and the poll tracks riots, things like that. Mm-hmm. I was wondering about, like, what that was like being there as far as, like, morale goes, as far as. You know, just, uh, you know, because right now I think that, like, there's this rising up that's certainly gaining steam. But, like, you know, it's such a huge attack on on everything that in every possible way, you know, environmentally to, like, you know... Working, attacking yeah, the working class, minorities—that like you know, I, yeah. I just kind of was wondering, like, how did how did did the community kind of deal with that in like like really dark times like that, and what, what was how well, did it affect?
1: Well, I think like yeah, like I said with the mines, you know, we we did benefit shows, and then we became where we lived in Leeds. Uh, our local neighborhood was twinned. the say twinned with one of the coal mines, so we'd go there you know, when they were having picket lines and demonstrations, and we'd see it close up, you know, there'd be uh, a line of striking miners facing a line of riot cops, and they'd be busing in the the scab workers, you know, the non-unionized workers, so we'd be like there, and it'd be like, you know, 5 a.m. in the morning in January, snowing, and people are throwing snowballs at the cops, and then they. They try and bring the uh, the non unionised labour in, and there's like a huge surge to try and stop the bus, and maybe they get in, maybe they don't. Uh, but it, it, it basically, those communities were, you know, which were built around the mines, so everybody who lived there was involved. Uh, so it, it, in a way, it united the whole communities uh, there, the local communities around the mines. But the wider, you know, communities, like I said, the press demonized the miners completely. Um, uh, But it's weird. I mean, how do you judge it? The people who went through it were changed by it. Uh, And when you go see, when you're in that situation, you know, as somebody who went on the picket lines a few times, when you see it so close, up, and it, it it was like a military police force, you know, just in ordinary northern English towns. You know, there'd be like a column of like 100 police vans with like 15 cops in them, riot cops in each one, and they'd all get out, and they'd all have their armour, body armor, and you just think, well, this they're defending the status quo, the state, uh, the powers that be. Uh, And you don't forget that, even though, you know, Thatcher kind of won that battle, she didn't win the poll tax battle because it was a much wider attack. And there was a huge demonstration in London and it's the only time (laughs) in Trafalgar, we we got to Trafalgar Square and it is the only time I've seen the police run away. (laughs) You know, the riot cops, they held the line for a while and people threw things, but it it was a riot. And then they, you know, there was a charge and they ran away. And and that (laughs) was a huge morale booster at the time. Uh, But obviously, you know, the state regroups, and the next day everything's back to normal. But uh, they can't, you know, they can't take that away from people—that experience of demonstrating and seeing this small little victory—and and and really the defeat, you know, because the poll tax was defeated, and it was one of the nails in Thatcher's coffin. Though they 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 never acknowledged it; they said, "Oh, it's our own party backstabbing other." What, what's her downfall, but uh, she, she'd taken on too many of the working class, and that, you know, in some ways, the politics was the straw that broke the camel's back for Thatcher. Uh, so that gives me hope that the, there will be something which brings enough people together to, uh, you know, derail this, this juggernaut train that the GOP is. You know, after the last election here, twenty twelve, I watched it. The you know, Obama wins, and you just thought, you know, and the the demographics of who was voting, and uh, you just thought, how can a bunch of white guys ever win again? And they did win in twenty sixteen, but the only way they could win is because the rules are so bent, whether it's gerrymandering or campaign financing or uh still winning even though you don't win the popular vote yeah the
2: college yeah
1: yeah, yeah the college it, 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 the system is 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 you know it's not fully functioning it doesn't represent the people it represents those people who can play the system best uh which is what the GOP did but i think they are on borrowed time because the demographics of this country are changing. If people will come out and vote, there's no way a bunch of white guys would win. Right. Uh, if, you know, it's... if they're denied the vote, as which the GOP are always trying to do, you know, I don't know if it was Wisconsin, where you had to have a photo ID driving license at the polling station. So if you're poor and don't own a car, you can't vote. If If it worked as it should, then there's no way that the GOP would get elected. But right. uh, can you like... they spend huge amounts of money to make sure that that it doesn't work as it should.
0: Well, it's interesting what you're saying about um, the poll tax, the poll tax riots, and comparing that to right now with what happened with J twenty, uh, mm-hmm. where. And you know about the 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 anarchists that were arrested, or the black bloc, I guess I might say, that were arrested mm-hmm. during J twenty, and have been on trial. The idea of them locking down on that the way that they did shows that it was a frightening and you know like th- a real threat. So yeah, it's... yeah,
1: totally, yeah. Oh yeah, they they. Uh... I mean, the, you know, the press, the media, the cops, they love to have someone they can identify, whether the identification is correct or not, who are the enemy, or oh, these people are trying to overthrow law and order, whatever. Anarchists obviously fit into that very conveniently.
0: Right, so they, uh, they getting legs, I guess, is the thing, is because it seems like, you know, that happened and then... Like you know, it seems that they were sort of like that black block, those people during J twenty were like vilified as a fringe. Yeah. But like what yeah. would be, you know, like I guess the question is like what would be what would be enough to get it to have legs like something like the poll, poll tax riot to have to allow um that to like continue to grow.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I think one of the problems uh is uh in the United States, I mean, it's so vast. You know, in England, right, people go to London and it's, that's where the media is and you're right in the face. I mean, I know people go to DC or New York to demonstrate, but it, it is more complicated because it's such a vast country. Uh, and uh, it's so easy for the media to ignore it. You know, since Vietnam, really, like, the media basically ignore big demonstrations to a large extent uh, and uh it, i don't know it, what would you know who would know that you know uh the the like the florida high school students would take that gun debate to a new level because after like sandy hook and las vegas you know mainstream politicians oh there's nothing we can do and you know and people are dejected but they've taken it in a different direction by like going on TV and conferencing the NRA and and conferencing Rubio Marco and saying, look, you take money from the NRA, you know, putting them on the spot like that, uh, I think is a hopeful sign, you know. I mean, it's bonkers. The people in favor of gun control, sensible gun control, way, way outnumber, you know, the gun owners.
2: Well, it's like ninety percent of the population,
1: right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's insanity. And it's only because they, you know, Wayne Lapierre gets paid five point one million a year to lobby for the NRA. Yeah, that they, they, they uh, and the you know the mainstream media give him airtime, and the woman Dana, uh, that that is central to their power. Uh, big money, uh, lobbying muscle. Uh, So I think it's amazing that, you know, since the Florida thing, Parkland, uh, that the debate has changed a little bit, you know, and that's a hopeful sign. And there will be more, you know, because Trump and the GOP are undermining absolutely everything that most people hold dear, there will be more situations like that where ordinary people using their imagination will be able to change the narrative because that, that, you know, the the uh, the sort of GOP agenda, the corporate agenda, which pretty much hand in hand, the military agenda. A lot of their power is controlling the narrative, and a lot of our power will be trying to wrest some of that control and take it in new directions, which they don't expect or predict, because that's you know, where real change comes from, from below, and and it comes from out, left field, you know, they don't see it coming, they didn't see that coming, uh, and that's very encouraging, and of course they're trying trying to stamp down on it and ignore it, but I don't think it'll go away as easily as it has been dismissed before the anti-gun, the gun control uh, movement.
2: That's interesting, So, so as a uh, as a Brit or as a foreigner, especially living, like, out in Twisp, out in uh, out in a rural area of Washington like that, like, how do you see the gun control debate? Like, you know, I mean...
1: Uh, wh- well, I, yeah, I'm, Eng- I'm English, and I hold my hand up. You know, we had a school shooting in the 80s in Scotland, and a, a guy killed a lot of kids, and they banned guns. They pretty right. much banned them after that, and there hasn't been a school shooting since. Right. So I'm pretty anti-gun, and like I said, I don't think me having a gun, or me and me, anarchist friends having guns, would have any impact on the military might of the state. So it's not like, I I don't buy into that, oh, a gun makes me free. You know, all this, I'm more, these days, I kind of, and the last album I did is very uh, science influenced. Uh, you know, in science, like anything, can be bought by people with enough money. But actual science, the scientific method, look, let's look at this properly and, uh, you know, see what's really happening.
3: Yeah.
1: And, you know, and the government is, is cut back on gun research, banned it in certain states, because they know what it says. They know it said if you have a gun in your house, you're actually more at risk than not having one. Uh, and that is because, yes, somebody might come and try and rob you and they might have guns, but if there's a gun in the house, all of us, you know, whether it's the adults, the children, all of us go through times in our life when maybe we're depressed or the guy's a drunk and he, he suspects his wife's having an affair and he goes and finds the gun or the kid is shamed on Facebook by the French, so they go find the bun- gun and blow their head off, blow their own head off. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that is what science says. It, 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 you know, statistically, you're more at risk having guns in your house than not. And um, So I don't, you know, I... Uh, you know, and, and you look around the world, where you know, Australia, Britain, where they don't have school shootings or... The NARO say, oh, well, Switzerland and Denmark, you know, look at the percentages. But they've had like one shooting each in recent years. Uh, and in the U.S., it's it's ev- every, you know, mass shootings for people, it's every other day. I don't oh, know.
2: Yeah, it's horrible.
1: Yeah, you but, can't but,
2: but don't you pretend
1: think- that the guns aren't the problem, central to the problem. Yeah. You can talk all you want about oh well, it's people who are disturbed, but we all get disturbed sometimes. But a machine that fires a piece of metal at high velocity, and all you got to do is pull the trigger—that—that that is the fatal combination. You know, depression mixed with that results in uh, a lot more carnage, death.
2: What do you think about the argument, though, that that? Guarantees that this state maintains a monopoly on violence.
1: Uh, I think they've got a monopoly anyway. So here's he, he, yeah. he what I don't get: the NRA or, or the, you know, the and and there's a vast amount of guns and they're owned by a small percentage of the people. Most houses don't have guns in them here. Uh but. Uh,
2: Twist? A lot of houses, you know, <laughs> a
1: lot of gun owners have a lot of guns.
2: Yeah, the ones that do, uh, then they get a stockpile. Yeah, them.
1: they they stockpile them and yeah. they keep the gun manufacturers in business every time there's a a, a mass shooting because they worry that they're not going to be able to buy them, etc. Uh, but you know, the state have a monopoly anyway. The state, you know. They don't need guns to impinge on our freedom. They just get the NSA to look at our emails. You know, right. I mean, all the guns in the world. You know, if you're a gun owner, your freedom's gone anyway because they have that monopoly on the the, the technology that can look at emails or tap your phone illegally or probably illegally these days because they they they've just renewed that law. Yeah, but uh, but you know, uh, so. I don't buy into that. We're we're not free because uh, the state does have a monopoly, uh, and the state is in the pocket of corporations.
0: Well, um, I guess we could uh, we can move on a bit. Um, so Chumbawamba, I guess, made made all of its decisions collectively. Um,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, and and that you know that you know like we we came out of anarchist punk rock and you know, when Sex Pistols released Anarchy in the UK. We didn't know what Anarchy meant, but we went and looked it up and then realized, oh, there's an anarchist group in our town. We'll go to a meeting. And so from the beginning, we uh, operated as a collective. Uh, So if you're in the band, if you're going out, playing the songs, if you're on the album, then you're part of the womba, and whatever money is made and whatever decisions have to be made. Uh, So that's how we did it. And we did it You know, I did it for 22 years and then the folk element carried on for another eight years, so 30 years. Uh, And we still, you know, we still have business decisions to make today because people want to use the song or they want an interview or whatever it is. So, yeah, and that probably is why we did last so long because, you know, a lot of bands, I always quote Oasis, Oasis, you know, the English band, two brothers, and one of the brothers wrote all the songs. So he got all the... Uh, royalties for writing, so he was getting way more money than his brother and the other band members, and it caused huge problems, and they, they didn't last very long. Yeah, I mean, it just seems a sense, it, it can be painful and difficult and hurtful at times, you know, because there's eight of us in a room trying to decide on something, and we don't all agree, and so what do we do, and we come back to it, and can people budge on it, and but it, it worked for us, you know, and it's a much more... uh sensible model in the long run for organizing anything really
0: right well that's what's in, that's what's interesting it's like you managed to you know pull that off for as long as you did and it's like yeah. definitely a testament to community um, and then it was it was everyone right. It was like people that were just doing like roadie work were also involved in the collective process, right?
1: Yeah, we you know I mean the band was the collective because we booked the tours and uh, you know made the records or whatever. But we didn't share equally with the road crew because right. the road crew changed. But okay. we hopefully we paid them a decent wage. Right? You know, we didn't try and short change people. Mm-hmm. So.
0: And yeah. you were living, like, in a squat at this time, too. Um, you were all living together.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the first 10 years, it was a squat, and then we had to negotiate a rent agreement, but that was not a band house, you know, where we practiced and wrote stuff and uh, lived communally. Uh, so kind of, more or less, if you lived in the house, you were in the band, not totally, but uh, there were other people who, who kind of came along as well. Yeah, and then, you know, people fall in love and wanna live with the partners or we didn't we didn't all have children till after the big album. So uh and then that really from there being no kids to people in the band in nineteen ninety eight, uh by about two thousand and three there were eight children.
2: Wow. <laughs> so wow. that
1: really changed how we did think, including my two. I have twins who were now seniors in high school.
2: So, getting a little bit of money made you guys all comfortable enough to be able to provide for children. I, so. I guess, you know, we,
1: <laughs> we did it for 10 years as a hobby, you know, we did a lot of other jobs over in school and then we did it full time and we were making a living from touring. Yeah. But, you know, we were still late 20s, early 30s and we didn't have kids. So, and then yeah, I mean, you know, biologically like there's three women in the band and yeah. We get into our thirties and the body clocks are saying something, and it it fortuitously fell at the time when we did make some money. Yeah. So I guess it made it easier. Even though in England you don't need to, you don't need the national health will deliver your baby for zero dollars.
2: Right. Whereas here uh, it's like thirty grand or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you uh, yeah. do you miss having a community like that, or is?
1: Uh, I do. I mean, I went to England in December and I'm going in the summer. Uh, so I always hook up with the, the guys. So, yeah, I mean, it, I, it, you know, it was a huge chunk of my life, 22 years. And, you know, if you count one gig as a day of your life, you know, with the travel or whatever, then we were on the road for almost five years of my life. Right. <laughs> uh that way. Uh, so, yeah, it's something that will always connect me to those people. You know, it doesn't go away even, even though I'm 5,000 miles away from the rest of them. You know, and, and this day and age, Internet and Facebook, and I see what they're up to, and they're all pretty much still involved in things, you know, art, theater, music, politics.
2: How how did you it's end beautiful. up in Twisp?
1: Uh, so my former wife, the mother of my children, she went to Evergreen College in Olympia. Okay. And there's a lot of evergreen people out here. So the people she knew in school, some of the people lived out here. So we came to visit, and we were going to go live in Portland, Oregon, but we thought, we'll try Twist, and we're both still here ten years later."
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful area, the Maytown. It is. And stuff. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Winthrop, you ever go to the? Uh, do they still do that at barter fair, that hippie fest out there?
1: They do. I've been to it. Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> I back in it. That? Yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, that, you know, one of the cool things about living here, you know, people are very big on community, you know, and especially after the fires.
3: uh, Yeah.
1: People come together in ways that I don't know if they do, if it was a big city, I don't know. And, uh, you know, there's like some Canadian corporation wants to open a copper mine up on the mountains and it'll just leach into the main river and nobody is in favor of it. You know, nobody, absolutely nobody is in favor. You know, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. You poison the river then the whole economy of the valley dies, basically. Whether it's like fishermen or, you know, businesses who they rely on people coming to ski or to come and camp and hike in the summer or just. So, you know, that is one of those things. If they came and started doing the test drilling, then people would be up on the mountain camping out, you know, and sitting in front of the trucks. Uh, as it turned out, there's a moratorium, So, but that could change at any minute, you know, if the government decides to pass laws to open it up. So, yeah, there are things, you know, and I think you see it all over the world. I don't know if you read Naomi Klein, you know, where there are pipelines or oil, fossil fuel developments. If they're built, they will poison the local ecosystem. That is where people uh, come together across political lines. They're class lines, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah it's interesting yeah and, and, and it, i mean it's weird that it that takes that to make this hopeful and
0: yeah like that's in just rural a so a lot of yeah. yeah a lot of this organizing around the rural stuff is really interesting because that's where they're poisoning yeah. things and then yeah there seems to be a lot of coming together like, like around fracking There were like there would oh, yeah. be like some wealthy nimby dude and then like, has to organize with, like, actual people that are, like, broke and... Yeah, yeah, you know.
1: yeah. You know, I think it's like, here, there's a very strong land conservation movement, you know, stopping land from being developed, you know, pristine habitat. So, obviously, they were all against the... And they have, you know, uh I guess people who've worked as lawyers in Seattle and have retired, but they live out here. And they're still wanna do something and they're motivated and educated enough to, to be able to stop things uh, you know, you know, like Walmart won't come here. They know they went to like neighbouring Chelan and uh Omac and you see the impact that a Walmart store has on local businesses. But they re- they they looked up the Meta Valley twist from Winthrop and because you know, like Vale Village had tried to build a ski hill here in the eighties and nineties, and it was defeated by just ordinary folks organizing. Some of them lawyers, some of them just people who live here. Walmart realized, there's you know, it's not worth us even trying.
0: Uh, right. Well, that's yeah. I don't know. I think that like the rural stuff is is really fascinating because yeah, I was you know, recently read an article, is was like, that said, you know, like, it was, by it was in an anarchist zine, and they said, like, we've lost the cities, and that certainly is true in Seattle with Amazon, but they're talking about, you know, the, the opportunity that is in a small community, be it small towns, or like, just straight up in the country, and uh, I definitely, yeah, I would just like, have like met people who have done really crazy things around yeah organizing around fracking or around you know yeah. environmental things yeah. in rural communities and since there is a threat to you know some wealthy guy who bought a home out there then all of a sudden there you know there might be more you know they have oh to yeah that's
1: yeah that's quite to the, the sort of campaign you know when when everyone comes on board, and whether they're wealthy or uh, not, but certainly when you can tap into resources like law, you know, environmental lawyers, then it makes a huge difference to the, uh, the strategies available. All
0: right. Well, can we talk to you a little bit about your uh, your pranking? Um, okay. That was like some. That's actually my favorite part of Chumbawamba. Um, there was uh, you played a fundraiser for Princess Di is that correct
1: so yeah some of these were just made up you know we just right. wrote a press release sent it to the music press and they printed it right so it was like so we you know we i think throughout maybe the first couple of years we were like really serious poor-faced anarcho-punks and then we kind of realized that well we're not like that when we sat around at home and we're all goofing around and humor in uh art is a very powerful weapon and But also, it's just something that comes kind of naturally. So, why not, you know, spoof something in a song, or, or why not go beyond the confines of the stage and take it out there? And you know, and we use theatre on stage, so and it's part of like a theatrical tradition to take it beyond the music, perhaps, you know, add another dimension to it, Uh, and then certainly in a political demonstration, protest sense. I think theatrical spoofing is, is uh, you know, if you're making the powers that be look ridiculous, it, it's a good way to get an idea across. And certainly that kind of served us in good stead when, you know, for instance, we're at the Brit Awards, which is like the British Grammy Awards, and the Deputy Prime Minister sat there and was like the equivalent of the Vice President, uh, Tony Blair, right-hand man. And yeah, let's... Let's make him look ridiculous. Throw this water on him and say this is for the striking dot workers that you've just sold out. And it's on the front of all the newspapers the next day.
0: Yeah, stuff like that is 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 interesting, and it seemed I definitely seemed more common within like leftist circles to use more pranking, more.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like I don't know the Pie Brigade. And I think stuff it just that. you know I mean it,
1: it just seems. Kind of like I said, it's kind of normal and natural, but without it being, you know, preconceived or oh, this is a really good strategizing tool. It, it just seems you're gonna if you can make people laugh or smile, you're gonna engage them more. If even if, if you're just playing a show and you want people to like you or you want them to hear your ideas, you know, it just seems a uh, just a very human thing to do make fun of that whatever it is that imposes on our lives because it takes away some of the power of it even if only momentarily and it it allows you to uh, relate to other people
0: in that right so yeah I guess I should say a few just so like people that you know aren't really aware but like there was the middle which was was that the the
1: yeah yeah so that we took that a step further we did (laughs) We did the press release and then I think we actually recorded some songs. We definitely staged a photograph and, you know, the, the Liberal Party in Britain at that time, the middle way, that was their kind of slogan. So we pretended we were like a pro-liberal, the liberal, the political party group, you know, because you would have like left-wing groups and right-wing groups, but uh, oh, we're just going to spoof them for the sake of it, just to show how ridiculous their approaches, because they're trying to take the bits from the right and bits from the left and blend them together, and 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 it was a hopeless disaster for them. And they, I think we sent it to the Liberal Party headquarters, and they said, oh, you've got to come play the Liberal Party convention. It never went quite that far, but we did have the letter inviting us to go play.
0: Right. <laughs> it was kind
1: of funny.
0: Yeah. Um, and you, did you actually play a fundraiser for Princess Die? Was that, like
1: no no that was just a press release it was
0: another press but race. it would
1: just it would just us demonstrating that but if they take this seriously and they print it knowing mm-hmm. who then what else are they printing without stopping and thinking oh this actually might not be true <laughs> uh if they're so easy to fool them then it was more about the the, the sort of gullibility of the music journalists who we were always kind of at war with anyway because the English sort of mainstream music press was always, oh, politics is boring, blah, blah, blah. chimbawamba, they're just, you know, totally boring. Nobody likes them. <laughs> but they, it, these are just, like, conservative, like, kids who've just got out of college and suddenly they got a job at the New Musical Express and they're pretty clueless, a lot of them.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that, I guess, like, I don't know, that was always such a powerful tool uh that I feel like we see so much like less of now um Mm -hmm. is the idea of like actually punching up you know in a humorous way I guess it's interesting and this is where I kind of just wanted to bring it into a more current context it seems like a lot of that like sense of humor a lot of that has been appropriated by the right wing
1: yeah I don't know. I mean, it's funny in this country, you know, like because left-wing radio doesn't really exist, you know, in, in the same way that right-wing radio does. And it, partly, I don't know, it's because they're not financed. And when they have tried to do it, I guess it, it kind of suffers somehow. Partly, I'm sure it's a financing thing. A lot of rich people are uh, naturally lean to the right wing because they see the right, you know, GOP I'm talking about and beyond as protecting their privilege. So uh, privilege naturally attracts money, where, you know, left wing socialist doesn't in the same way, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I get probably like 20 begging emails a day from environmental groups and prospective democratic candidates, which I can't possibly, even if I wanted to, I can't afford to finance all these people. But, you know, if you have someone like the Cope brothers who have pledged 400 million to the next election cycle, uh, and then you look at the tax cuts that Trump brought in, and they they will probably get 1.4 trillion over the years in tax cuts. They're not actually paying any money out, it, it, so they're getting all back in tax cuts. It
2: was a great investment,
1: so, yeah. So uh, that's what I mean when I say privilege tends to protect itself, and that's what we're up against, right? And I think the humor, you know. You can't really market it, it but it, it, it draws people in. And even if it, you know, I mean, this is what the music press used to say in England. Oh, down with capitalism. But well, capitalism's still there after you've sold your records. But that's not the point. <laughs> and it's like we're just a small part. Artists are just a small part of a whole community of dissent, which is all over the world, which is uh, people who've had enough of the way things are organized, because it really does not benefit most of the people. And I think humor is just a small part of that. I don't know, I mean, you know, I watch the some of the stuff on YouTube, you know, the late night talk shows when they've just passed some new outrageous law, and I laugh, even though it's like, that is serious shit that is gonna result, people will die because of that law, whatever it is, whatever they just brought in, you know, the Tax Act. People will die because of that, because they can't afford to survive. But I, I think, yeah, humor is just one of the ways of, of bringing people together to think, yeah, well, we actually agree on this. This is a total fuck-up, and we need to do something about it. Maybe people think that. I don't know. But without the humor, I think would be an even, an even worse situation.
0: Well, I definitely feel yeah. like the, the left is sort of needs to step their game up on that level um like we yeah. look at like say i don't know when you look at youtube personalities and they're on the right wing and these the pepe the frog and all their all okay, their yeah. sort of sense yeah. of humor where they just bully people and it's funny because most of them are like overly projecting serial masturbators and and mm-hmm. that are sitting at home on their computers all day, you know, but I yeah. mean, it, seems, it seems like the left was working with meme culture before like meme was a word, you know, but certainly before yeah. the computers are what they are today. But now you see some of that like being sort of appropriated by the right wing. And the difference is, is like, yeah, there is money behind it. Like they want to seem like, yeah, oh, oh, we're just another person on the internet or on 4chan. But meanwhile, you know, Koch brothers are throwing money around into this, and the yeah, and the oh
1: yeah, totally, the sort of conservative think tanks. They, you know, they find people to form front groups and kind of represent those interests, and and that's that part of it. They get people you know, to vote for Donald Trump or the GOP candidates. But, yeah, and, and you know, so, I mean, you know, the way campaign financing is in this country, and that's how the Koch brothers and the think tanks, you know, were angling for that for years in the Supreme Court, Citizens United, made up bogus front group, I mean, calling it Citizens United. And so sort of limitless spending in elections, and it, it destroys any notion of it being democratic, free and open democracy, when uh, rich people can donate however much they want. Yeah, I mean, I have issues. So basically, you know, the checks and balances, which are supposed to be the heart of the American political system, obviously are not working because somebody like Trump would never have got elected. And, you know, uh, the Supreme Court, which to me, being English, you know, we have the House of Lords, which is if you're born an aristocrat, or if you're like Tony Blair, you're prime minister, and then they give you some title, then you can be in the House of Lords. And it's not, it doesn't represent ordinary people. It's like aristocrats, rich people, and ex politicians. You know, same with electoral courage. It's kind of archaic and susceptible to corruption. And we really have to take it apart and start again.
0: Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about uh, General Motors and the, them using one of your songs?
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So we, you know, we had the big song and everything, the big album. And suddenly, uh, it never had happened to us before in 15 years, we're getting requests from companies to use the song in a commercial. Usually, it took something, the big song. Uh, with General Motors, it was a different song, Pass it along. I think. And anyway, we were in Italy on tour the first time it happened and it was like the Fiat car company. Oh, we'll give you like, you know, $15,000 if you let us use the song on an advert in Italy. And we're like, no way. You know, supporting car culture, the fossil fuel oil industry, no way. And then somebody said, well, why don't you take the money and give it away and give it to somebody? So we thought, oh. And then we were in Italy and so it was Italian. So, there was this venue we played at regularly in Milan, and they, uh, they also ran a pirate radio station. And we asked them, we said, look, if we do this advert and take $15,000 and give it to you, would you accept it? And they said, yeah, of course we would. That would keep us going for like five years. <laughs> so we did it. And uh, and so it happened a few times and, and it was one of my jobs in the band when we got those requests to, to kind of research the companies and look into it. And then we'd have a meeting and decide and or see if there was anyone we could donate the money to if we wanted. And uh, So we got one from General Electric and it was for like a, you know, like a handheld computer and the advert, you know, they give you a treatment of the advert. And it's this guy up a mountain. There's a guy with a broken leg. And we can put this scanner on the guy's leg and it will show the broken bone up on a mountain. You think, yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> and then I, this is October 2001. And then I go on General Electric website and it said, oh, yeah, General Electric, building the engines for the planes that are dropping bombs on Afghanistan. Basically, it's what they said in between the lines. They put it more... Uh, in ad speed than that. And we just thought, there's no way we can do that. There's no way we can, you know, give money to General Electric, even though it's probably a completely different company under the umbrella of General Electric. And so from that point on, it, and they were offering like three quarters of a million dollars for that advert, but we said no. And so from that point on, every time we got one, it would be like, yeah, can we do it? Can we give the money someone? Can we live with having our music used by that corporation. And so some of them we thought, yes, yeah, some no. And the General Motors one, same thing. We I think it was indie media and there was a group that who specifically <laughs> were targeting General Motors. So we asked both groups and um, would you take the money and they both said yes. So we said, okay, we'll do it. And then we got to a point where we couldn't afford to do it anymore because Basically, we had to have that money in the bank because the money we got from royalties, we had like publishing advances. So it was always like a couple of years behind when we actually got the money. So we had to have money in the bank to actually hold up our end of the deal and give the money to the activist groups. But it worked for like two or three years, I think, where we could do it. And we just thought, yeah, this is interesting. It's not what bands do. It's not what bands normally do. And it's it's just a way of... Funneling money to groups who were not 501Cs and they don't, they haven't got huge donors behind them. You know, the people we gave money to were pretty much grassroots organisations. So it was kind of cool. You know, some people hated it. Some of our fans they thought we were sellouts. You know, the whole big song and being on a major label. Right. But it, it was for us, really. It was kind of an experiment, an amazing experiment, just trying to take it. You know, as well as existing as a band and doing what bands do, but just trying to see how far you can take this. And it's like with the, you know, dumping water on the guy. We learned pretty quickly, and so did the record companies, what kind of people, you know, what kind of pranksters we were. And you realize pretty quickly that once you start doing that, the doors just start closing. So, you know, we're on David Letterman. We changed the lyrics to Free, Mumia, Abu Jamal, and... So the next album comes out, they're like, "No, we don't want you. Sorry, we can't trust you." You just really, you, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot if you wanted to carry on in the mainstream, which is why most mainstream bands and they just play by the rules. You know, we pushed it as far as we could, and it lasted a couple of years, and then, right, you know, you get dropped by the major labels because a you're not selling. <laughs> records, which is their first consideration, and B, you're not playing by the rules of the game anymore, if we ever were, and uh, they shut it down pretty quickly. And that's how the major media operates, you know, journalists who, who are too investigative or too critical of the sort of agendas of those news organizations. They don't keep the jobs. Do you there do you... are the odd exceptions to that you know the 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 investigative people like Robert Fiske in England are are so well respected that the newspaper realizes they sell newspapers so so that kind of trumps the fact that they're you know uh, I won't say revolutionary, but you know they're proper real investigative journalists and they do question the agenda but if they become popular enough to sell newspapers, then they get away with it. And we got away with it because we were selling records, but as soon as you start selling records, then no, not
0: acceptable. Right. Uh, well, you, you definitely kept up with it, it seems as long as it would it was as you could. Is it, do you feel like that was the best route? Like, do you feel like, you know, cause I know uh, it was controversial. I, I don't know, I think it was
1: just a, a different route. You know, we had like uh, our peers, for instance, so, for Gaza, for instance, or the X in Holland, you know bands we'd played with, who stuck to the independent route, and which I totally respect, and they uh, certainly, with their respective fan bases, retained more dignity, shall we say. Uh, we had a huge backlash, you know, signing to a major label, um, but for us, it, it was well. This is, you know, we've we've been on. We had our own label. We had a small indie label, and a big indie label, and where do we go from here, And not, not necessarily that we were trying to keep an upward trajectory, but just, oh, we have this opportunity to do something different for us, and in the context of political music, maybe, with us, and we had huge arguments and long band meetings about whether to sign to a major label. And in the end, we, we kind of all agreed that, well, yeah, let's just do it, and it'll probably last a year, and then they'll dump us. But <laughs> well, it lasted a bit longer, but they did dump us. But in that time, we did, we did get to do things which most bands, we, we were on platforms that most bands don't get on, and, and if they do, they respect the platform and think they have to play by the rules. And we picked our moments, but there was certainly a good chunk of moments where we, we hopefully threw a spanner in the works momentarily. And, and, you know, I think over time and in retrospect, a lot of people, even some of the detractors, respected what we were trying to do, even if they didn't necessarily agree with it, or if they did that with their bands, they'd choose a different route. But we were just trying to be a public nuisance for a short time in the short window of opportunity that we had. Well...
0: Um... Uh I, I guess that's about all my questions. Yeah, is there anything kind of a closing thing you want to say or like
1: I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm still putting out records, still writing songs and doing pranks locally. Nice. <laughs> and uh uh just yeah, I mean, I don't know what else I can do. Right. Uh it's funny, I feel a little bit uh I'm I'm in my 50s, so uh I won't say like an elder of the tribe, but it's kind of cool, you know. I go play in Seattle or Portland, and and uh, or bands come here, and I meet them, and they're they're interested because I I do have this history, and they've heard about it or heard parts about it, and they want to know about it. And it's kind of cool that people are still interested, and that as someone who is not like hip and young anymore, I can still make some kind of impression.
0: Yeah, that's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it also seems like you're still kind of trying to do, uh, like, an anarcho-community or community thing, at least, where you're at.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I still, you know, try and make it interesting and challenging, hopefully, uh, in some ways, lyrically, if not, you know, musically. I mean, I'm, but I still have fun writing and playing music and, and thinking, oh, you know, I could take this in a direction that most people probably wouldn't take it in. And that, as an artist, that's what keeps me going. So I'm trying to challenge myself and then think how this might play out to an audience.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to see, yeah, like somebody that was actually, you know, like that you were actually a pop star and then yeah, now I mean, you're yeah, doing I, theater. And like that's yeah. a very valid thing to be doing as well, you know. It is,
1: yeah. It certainly is, yeah. I never thought I'd be a, a teacher of any kind, but it, it's probably... A, my time in life, what it's that. Well, I do. I did acquire some skills as a performer, and I can maybe share them with a the younger generation. Nice. So that's kind of cool.
0: Okay. Well, oh cool. um,
1: well, uh, Craven, thanks so much. Yeah, thank um, you.
0: Uh, I really do appreciate yeah. you having on our on our show. So thanks a lot. Cool. Well, well, thanks. thanks so much.
1: Bye. Yeah. Bye. Take care. Bye.